When I say the word psychopath, who do you think of? Maybe a serial killer, maybe the Hannibal Lecter-style villain from horror movies. Well, my guest today says maybe we should be thinking of people closer to home. David Gillespie is a researcher and author, and he says we're more likely to come across a psychopath in our day-to-day lives, particularly in our workplaces, than we might think. But David also says there are ways to be prepared. David's latest book is called Toxic at Work, Surviving Your Psychopathic Workmates, From the Dominant Bullies to the Charming Manipulators. David, welcome to Life Matters. Good morning, Jacinda. I'm so nervous about this conversation, David. (laughs) Uh, First question I have for you, is it a red flag that you've written two books on on psychopaths? Um, (laughs) What's your interest in this area? Uh, look, I had an early experience in my working life uh, with a psychopath where I was in a workplace. It was a small team. Uh, it was working well together. Everybody trusted each other. Everyone got on with their job. We were specialists. We, we, we produced more than any individual one of us could alone produce. Uh, and then a psychopath was introduced into the mix. Now, first, this person was uh, extraordinarily charming, fabulous to be around, um, you know, said everything you wanted to hear and seemed like a terrific addition to the team. Uh, and then they attained a position of power in the team uh, relatively quickly and suddenly the workplace changed. It was like all the trust got sucked out of the room. Suddenly you didn't know um, whether you were going to be picked on next, whether the you know you saw the guy next to you ripped apart in a meeting and you decided to keep your head down. You didn't know whether to trust um, you know him or anyone else. Uh, suddenly you couldn't trust anyone and you went into protect yourself mode. Sick leave went through the roof. Suddenly people are, are looking for other jobs and those that could get them got them and left. And it it seemed to all resolve revolve around this one person and their their strange and unpredictable moods. Uh, and yet their bosses, the people above them in the organization, uh, thought they were the best thing since sliced bread. And and it was a complete contrast to how everyone below them in the organization uh, viewed them. And I, I just couldn't understand what motivated them. Often they would do things that seemed bizarre. They, they, for the very smallest advantage, they would do something enormously destructive to the team or the organisation. Um, and you would say to yourself, surely they didn't do it just so they could um, get a seat, uh, you know, closer to the window or, or get a, uh, you know, a better computer. Surely they didn't just cost this company a million dollars to do that. Uh, and that sort of thing uh, really piqued my curiosity. I needed to understand what it, what was this person like, what was driving them, um, and more importantly, how was I supposed to interact with them? Because all the traditional things didn't seem to work. You know, trying to work with them just seemed to provoke them more. Uh, so, yeah, I have a bit of a history with it, and, and it, it was my ongoing search for explanations for that that drove... I guess writing the first book about it, uh, taming toxic people, but but that really didn't go far enough for me because it was it was uh, looking at what the science said, whereas what I wanted to understand and what I wanted to convey to people was you need to get inside their head. You need to understand exactly how they are thinking so that you can react properly, uh, and and that's what I wanted to convey in this book is is provide a vehicle that allows us to think like a psychopath. 
David, with that example that you just used in your own life, were you, was it something that you were aware um, immediately you were dealing with that type of personality or is it something that's actually really hard to isolate when you're in that moment? No, it was. I was utterly confused. I had no idea what I was dealing with. I, I knew it wasn't normal and I knew that our workplace had changed dramatically and I knew that this person's behavior wasn't normal, but I didn't have a label for it. I didn't have a description for it. I was just mystified by it. I found myself w- walking on eggshells around them. Uh, I, you know, I, I found myself wanting desperately to have nothing to do with them. You know, you, you sort of, you'd feel your adrenaline go up even walking into the same room with them. And, but initially, I thought they were terrific. Um, you know, when I first met them, I thought they were incredible. They were one of the most charming people I'd ever met. Now, my wife said to me at the time, there's something off about that person. Um, she couldn't say what it was, but she, he, he'd, he'd raised her hackles. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and now I wish I'd listened. <laughs> um, but that's a reaction a lot of people have around psychopaths and most people ignore. Most people have a gut feel um, that the person is different. And that gut feel comes from a particular characteristic of the psychopath, which is right at the core of what they are. So I want to be really clear about the definition of psychopath. Uh, you said at the start, you know, we think of criminals and so on. And I put that down to a, uh, a movie in the 1950s called Psycho. Uh, you know, Norman Bates was uh, a psychotic, not a psychopath, but it forever corrupted the meaning of that term. Prior to that, the word psychopath really just meant morally insane. That is a person who is perfectly normal appearing, but has no morals whatsoever and will do the worst things as long as they can get away with them because they just don't care about other humans. They have zero empathy for other humans. Uh, and we think that there's about one in 20 of us uh, in the population fit that description. That's an extraordinary number. How, how have we come to think that it's that large a population? Uh, well, look, there's been a lot of research. I mean, it's the first question everybody asks is, uh, yeah, okay, is this is this like one in a million uh, or, or is this something that, that we're likely to actually encounter in real life? Uh, and, and a lot of people tried to answer the question. The first studies were done in, in prison populations uh, and in a prison population, the number is probably settling around 40%, um, which is very, very high. Uh, when more general studies have been done in the general population, it's been as low as 1%. Uh, recent studies in, in the executive suite of organisations put the number at around 30% in, in, at high levels of management in organisations. But the consensus appears to be settling around the 4 to 6% mark in the general population. So rounding that, uh, I'll say 1 in 20 There's lots of texts and questions coming through. One of the questions here is, please ask, what is the difference and overlap between a psychopath and a narcissist? And I guess that clinical definition is one that we should put out there as well. There's an intuition around it. it. What do we think of it clinically? Okay, so clinically, it's been deleted from the official diagnosis. So there used to be a diagnosis of psychopathy with the first version of the the official diagnostic manual back in the 1950s. Uh, and it's it's been watered down progressively over time and split up into two diagnoses of narcissist and antisocial personality disorder. Um, the key feature 
of a psychopath is that they have no empathy. Now, that currently sits under a narcissist in the official diagnosis, but I don't put much store in the official diagnosis here because there has been a long line of watering down of this to the point where it is almost useless. Where using the official diagnostic terms, you could diagnose almost anyone as narcissistic, but looking at the real criteria, the ones established back in the 1940s about what it is to be a psychopath, that is a person who completely lacks empathy, is callous um, and and careless with other people. That type of personality, the, the original definition, um, is what I'm talking about when I say psychopath. And I think generally what we tend to do when we write about this personality type, because psychopath is almost a little bit defamatory sounding, particularly its association with psychosis, um, is we tend to use softer terms or what we think are softer terms like sociopath or narcissist or malignant narcissist or workplace bully or micromanager. We're all talking about the same type of person. Uh, and that is a really key point here, isn't it, is how we identify this um, this personality trait, I suppose, that you are highlighting, the psychopath. What are some of the what are some of the clear red flags when uh, uh, that we can see? Yeah. So wh- one of the things that causes people to have that initial feeling of uncertainty, o- often, as I said, often the first time you meet a psychopath, uh, they don't know who you are. They don't know whether you can benefit them at all, uh, and so they tend to be charming. Uh, they tend to be extraordinarily good at charm. They have spent their whole life pretending to be something they aren't, which is a person who cares about other people. Uh, And they are very, very good at reading the signals from other people and reflecting back to us what they know we want to hear. They always interview really, really well. They get into organizations very, very easily because the interviewer comes out thinking, that person is exactly what I want. They're they're saying what I need to hear. They've got the experience I need to see. Most of it is fiction. Most of it is completely made up, but they are very, very good at charm. The downside is that that charm has to be manually manufactured. Uh, So in in non-psychopathic people, we have something called empathy, uh, which is really, I guess, a light speed communication system where we can read another person's emotions automatically and respond to them automatically. Uh, it, it's what helps us trust strangers. And it's and that trust between strangers is what's helped us become an apex predator on this planet uh, because we can cooperate in large groups, whereas no other species can. So that trust is vital and it's automatic and it's done by us reading each other's emotions. Psychopaths cannot do that, but they can try to imitate it. The trouble is the delay in imitating it versus the automatic version of it is slightly off. And that's what creates the feeling, the science says, uh, when we first meet one. And whilst they seem charming and fabulous, we have this gnawing feeling that perhaps there's something wrong with this person. We just can't put our finger on it. But if you're looking for bigger scale things that start to become obvious, once they drop the charm facade, it becomes really obvious. They start bullying, they start intimidating uh, people who can no longer produce anything of value to them or who are below them in an organisation, and they have the opposite um, uh, behaviour with people who are above them in the organisation. So they are charming, they are nice, they are helpful in, in any way you can imagine. But right at the core of all of this is selfishness. If you notice a persistent pattern of them choosing a benefit to themselves, no matter how small, over a benefit to anyone else or the organisation, no matter how large, then 
they are probably a psychopath. You've made some really interesting points around that charm and its interaction with management above. Many texts are coming through around that complex relationship. This one here, I've worked with one before but left the workplace as she was terrible to be around. She was a manager and to the powers that be, she appeared fantastic and achieved her goals. Our business run at home now is wonderful in comparison and we are all having a laugh about which one of us is the psycho. <laughs> uh, this one as well, same um, same sentiment from um, Baffled in Thornbury. Jacinta, this conversation is making alarm bells ring. I'm currently working for a psycho, hugely charming, charismatic and can talk the leg off a chair, but is a toxic, corrupt gaslighter who was responsible for the turnover of about six team members and the distrust of the remaining team. They have charmed the managing board who totally support them and I can't see how or why they are so successful. Again, another text asking the question that I'd love you to respond to. How do you get their bosses to act on the psychopath? Why is it the team members' responsibility to use their energy to manoeuvre them? And that's the big one, isn't it? How do we communicate um, up to management that can support the situations that are happening in our workplaces? The bad news is you can't. Um, The bad news is that they have unlimited time and energy to devote to white anting you with the people above you and them in the organization. If you go to, if you try to go around them, if you try to go to their boss or to HR or something like that, you will find that they have prepared the ground already. Um, Those people will already be set up by them with the opinion that you are the problem, not them. They will have warned them to expect approaches from you, making outlandish claims about them, which will be contrary to their experience of the psychopath, which will have always been uniformly positive. It is very, very difficult to con- to take on a psychopath inside an organisation. You are almost definitely not going to survive it. And a psychopath will, will, will treat it as a direct challenge to their authority and target you mercilessly after that. Uh, the only way that you can um, control a psychopath in an organisation is have an exterior force to the organisation uh, come in who doesn't care about the organisation's reputation, who doesn't care about the individual's reputation. So this sometimes happens in mergers and acquisitions where a where the buyer's HR department comes in and cleans house. Uh, they, they're quite able to objectively look at what's going on and say, this unit here has massively out of control uh, absentee rates and sick leave. There must be something going on with its manager. They're able to do those sorts of external assessments, but it is extraordinarily rare to see that sort of thing happen from within the organisation. David Gillespie is your guest. David, I didn't want that answer, but I'm taking it on the chin as we go. He's a researcher and author of Toxic at Work, Surviving Your Psychopathic Workmates and also Toxic at Work. Um, So, David, this one here, you mentioned before uh, this text here that I'm about to refer to, that really confusing relationship that you had as well because, of course, this potential um, person comes in, they become friends. This text here says, my best friend discovered at the start of this year that the person she thought was her closest work friend turned out to be a narcissist and a highly skilled manipulator. She's usually an incredible judge of character. So this has really thrown her. She's now his manager and he's managing to play her against her outside circle of friends. Her choices are at this point are to leave her job or her circle of friends. Her boss is insisting that my friend keep personal and work life separate, but this man has made it literally impossible. What should my friend do? And toxic at work, David, 
is really the book that you've written to help work out how do we manage these situations? Yeah, exactly. Uh, th- this is where we get right down into the detail and start talking about what strategies you should, should employ. I want to highlight a, a mistake that was made by by this person's friend right from the get-go that we all make, uh, I certainly made it, uh, is we overshare. We believe that, that psychopaths are normal people. They look like normal people. They behave like normal people. We believe we can trust them. The default human state is to trust a stranger uh, until they prove themselves untrustworthy. But we go in trusting. Psychopaths go in not trusting. They don't trust anyone else and they assume no one else trusts them. So they uh, work from the get-go on using their charm to pump you for information. So they are lovely to chat to. They'll be talking about this, that and the other. And they'll be asking you about your friends and your family and how's this going and how's that going and, and just gathering information. All of it is potential leverage for them uh, later on. They have, they're not doing it for any particular purpose. It's an automatic way of behaving. And the first step you've got to do in, in a workplace is guard against that. Be friendly. Be helpful. Do not disclose anything that is not business related, even on business related, stick to the question you're asked. Often, uh, you know, I'm, my day job is a lawyer and one of, one of the things they tell lawyers is, you know, uh, when, when you're in the witness box uh, or when you have a witness in the witness box, answer the question that's asked and give no further information. Same thing goes for a psychopath. Um, politely answer the question that's asked and give no further information. Coming back to her particular problem, which is... Um, is the solution to get out of there. Often the only solution is to leave the job. Uh, now, for some of us, that's not an option. For some of us, uh, there is no way to leave the job. And then we have to adopt a different strategy, which uh, psychologists call the grey rock strategy, which is giving nothing, reacting, not at all. Um, but uh, the safest thing for your mental health is to get out of the environment. Safety is a real issue here, isn't it? Because we are talking about very um, pervasive mental health challenges when you're in these sorts of environments. But also, David, the way you describe this makes me feel like we can't have those workplaces that you described at the start, a really functioning team, a team that looked after each other, that spoke to each other openly. How can we engage in work if we can't bring our full selves and have that trust? Those workplaces do exist. There are organisations which are not run by psychopaths and which have built really great defences against them. And I go through some of them as case studies in this book and exactly what they did and exactly how they defend against it. Those organisations do exist. Those organisations are incredibly productive. In fact, I think one of coming out of this, one of the things I think would be really good to do is create an index fund of uh, you know that you could invest in that only invested in organisations that were run by people who weren't psychopaths because the the data on that, which is now coming through, shows those organisations significantly outperform uh, organisations run by psychopaths. So they do exist. The key is when you're in an organisation like that, uh, stay in an organisation like that. And if it starts to change, get out of there and look for another place. You talk about guarding against. I'd love to hear a a few of those ideas, but is there a way we can roll this right back and think about the origin point of the psychopath? You mention and you talk in the book about children who Mm. um, display um, no empathy. How Mm. do we – is there a way to, as carers, as families, to sort of go, look, I think I'm brewing a psychopath in my home. What can we do? 
Well, let's start from the beginning. All babies are psychopaths. Um, so anyone... <laughs> that really should have been the headline of your book. <laughs> any any um, time, uh, anyone who's ever interacted with a baby knows this for absolute certain. Um, so a baby doesn't care about you. A baby doesn't care how your day's been, whether you've had a hard day at work, doesn't care whether you've slept well, doesn't care about any of those things. All it cares about is that it needs to be fed and its nappy needs to be changed. So babies are psychopaths and, and the biochemistry confirms this. Humans, when we are born, do not have any significant density of the types of neurons we need for empathy. Uh, so babies are psychopaths. What happens by the age of four is that we grow an almost complete adult set of these neurons. 19 out of 20 of us do, that is. One out of 20 of us never do. So we develop empathy by the age of four. By the age of four, we are capable of trusting other humans uh, and we are capable of building communities of trust and, and empathizing with other humans, except one in 20 of us don't. Now, that four-year-old starts to get a sense that they don't think the way everybody else thinks. Now, and an example I give in the book is 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 a child who who pushes another child off a gym set and and it breaks their leg, uh, pushing the bone through the skin. And the child is is looking at the the bone through the skin, thinking how interesting that is, and 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 really she's never seen anything like that, um, and is really curious about it. While everybody else is upset. Uh, and and in tears and and various levels of distraught. The parents are upset. The other kids are upset. Everybody is. And the psychopath looks around at those people and thinks to themselves, what is wrong with these people? Why are they so upset? This hasn't happened to them. It's just that kid on the ground. And look, it's really interesting. Uh, but very, very early on, they understand I don't think the way these people do. And I'd better start pretending I do think the way they do or else I'm going to be cast out from society. So it's it's really, I mean, I've, I've heard we can teach empathy. That is um, a capacity for us to learn, as you say. It's something that we don't innately have necessarily as babies. But I guess once that's taught, how do we bring that into workplaces? There's a text here saying that they've seen um, a 360 uh, senior management on all the board to have a 360 degree review works a treat. I've seen it done twice and it worked. Is that the kind of solution that we need to be looking for? If you've got a board or a, or a, a, a chairman of the board who actually wants to discover and eliminate psychopaths and is prepared to listen to all levels of the organisation about it, then it is possible to do it. It takes great determination because the psychopath will instantly make themselves the victim. Uh, and, uh, I mean, great example, Lucy Letby uh, in in the UK, nurse who killed seven babies and, and attempted to kill, uh, I think, eight. Um, uh, when, she was when it was first put forward that she um, might be the cause because she's the only one on shift at the same time as all these things happened, uh, the, the consultant specialist said that, uh, pointed the finger at her. The hospital uh, accused them of conducting a witch hunt uh, and asked for them to put forward a, a, a public apology to her. So the first reaction of a psychopath is to cr turn themselves into the victim. But if an organisation is prepared to grind on uh, and and actually pursue an action to remove psychopaths from its midst, it can do so. And there's a great example in the book where I go into quite a lot of detail about Costco, um, a large, one of the most successful retailers in the world, uh, and how they have guarded themselves against psychopaths. 
It is really, as I said before, the danger of working in spaces that aren't safe for us is very present for so many people. This is something we talk about in some way, but an understanding, a deeper understanding that you provide in this book and solutions is really where we need to be looking. Toxic at Work is the book. David Gillespie, researcher and author, has been your guest. Thank you so much for joining us on Life Matters. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.